We begin this morning a study in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1 begins as did a lot of first century communication correspondence with uh, both in the church, of course, but also just secularly or in the world as people were writing letters back and forth. We see different examples of it. For, for example, first, or in Acts 15, a letter that was composed by the elders and uh, another one in Acts 23, was it? Lysanias to Felix and the letter that he wrote. But the point we see is that we see the, the name of the writer first and then the recipients listed next and then usually a greeting of some kind. And with Paul anyway, in 90 some odd percent of his writings, a thanksgiving. We see that very much uh, followed in this format as well. Paul is writing to a church that he had founded, and we'll look at some history, we'll look at some some, uh, some maps even, pictures and so forth as we go along. As I mentioned, it's the second longest of Paul's epistles. It deals with very practical matters as we go through it, very much... Um, I mean, you, you can act on exactly what he teaches about uh, uh, division or factions within the church, about spirituality, wisdom, foolishness, the power of the gospel to change lives. In fact, this has the most exhaustive sections or teachings on singleness, marriage, divorce issues. Uh, what is biblical love? Chapter 13, of course. What is uh, proper use and appreciation of spiritual gifts? In chapters 12 and 14 surrounding that discussion of, of love there in chapter 13, and fantastic exposition of what is resurrection all about. And the heart of the gospel, of course, is the resurrection. Well, there's many hearts of the gospel, I suppose, but one, one aspect is the resurrection of Christ. And what does that mean for us and our personal bodies and the expectation we have to be raised up with Christ? Well, he says here in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. So these are the authors listed here, or at least an author, and maybe one who is helping, maybe one that is identified with Paul, and who is the Sosthenes, we'll consider him in just a moment. But first, Paul is one of the chief characters of the, the New Testament time period, and one of the leading uh, apostles, he would have different words, I suppose, uh, least of the apostles, because he was um, persecuted the church, and yet he says, I am an apostle, and he makes that very clear here. But Paul was a Jewish man, trained under Gamaliel in Jerusalem, very religious. You can read his differently. He would formally think of cred as credentials in chapter thir 3 of Philippians, you know, Hebrew of Hebrews and tribe of Benjamin, and all these wonderful things, and he says, that's nothing compared to knowing Christ and being found in, the, in him. That is where my life is now. But he was religious to the extremes, to the nines, if you don't mind, and even went so far as to persecute the church. You can read, read all about that in Acts 8 and 9. He was there when Stephen was killed, and he was there just ravaging the church, going from house to house and imprisoning and even leading some to their execution because he was so fanatical for his, his father's, patronomically speaking, his, his ancestors' religion, the rabbi's religion, and, and all these things. And yet Christ saved him. You can read all about it, Acts 9. He rehearses this on various occasions throughout his different letters. In fact, he, he, the, the testimony of Paul's salvation is repeated, of course, the first time it happened, but then he repeats it two or even three times at the end of, of Acts and telling, look, this is what I used to do, but now in Christ I'm a different person and I am establishing the church that I used to want to destroy. Paul had an itinerant ministry. We'll look at a, a map here in just a moment about how did he get over to this place, Corinth, but or Corinth, however you want. We have a church, a, a city just down the road. Corinth, I think, is how they pronounce it down there. So, but Corinth, uh, or 
whatever, uh, there in, in Greece, Achaia. And so we see that he is active, really active, in sharing the gospel, establishing churches, and seeing them built up on the most holy faith that is once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude would say in his letter. Well, he will consider more aspects of his history and time and so forth as we get into these other verses here. But notice that he says, I was called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He usually makes that point very often, didn't in his probably his first two letters, first and second Thessalonians, he just says, it's Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, I think, wrote those two letters. Here he just says, hey, I'm, and, he, and then to, to the church in Thessalonica, church of the Thessalonians. Here he says, I'm Paul called and his apostle. Paul, in terms of, of himself, is a humble character. He will um, embarrass himself or, or make himself lesser so that Christ can be made glorified in his life. In other words, he's a humble person in his own person and character and attributes and whatever about himself. But when it comes to his identity as an apostle, he upholds that, he affirms it, he says, this is me, this is who I am, this is my responsibility. And even it, it summons or calls back the response from his hearers, whoa, this is an apostle, we better listen to him. So he has great confidence in his ministry. He he's, makes the point very clearly here, I am called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He is, as, we, as I said, self-effacing or just humble about his own self, but when it comes to his, his role in the church, very clear about this. He says he was called as an apostle. Not called an apostle, but called as an apostle. He is uh, appointed, if you don't mind the different term. He is one who has been set apart for this particular office. It's not something that he sought for himself. It's not something that he received by a, a grant or a, a pronouncement by a church. It wasn't through the laying on of hands by the presbyteries. He talked about Timothy. This is something that he received from God, even as he was going to persecute the church. Again, read Acts 9 and see what was he about and how did this happen. It wasn't anything from men. It wasn't his own thing. It was even, if you don't mind, uh, Jesus even asked him, why do you kick against the goads? You know what a goad is? You know, a stick to, to move the animals. Why are you kicking? Ouch, I can't even think of that without hurting. Why are you doing that? Paul was changed divinely and summoned and appointed to this office. He was very clear on that. This, I'm called as apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It's not something that other people did, and it's certainly from God himself. He says, I'm an apostle. Now, apostle, uh, how, how's the saying go? You know, epistles and apostles. Well, epistles are the wife of the apostle, wives of the apostles. That's not what it is. An epistle is a, is a, uh, a writing. It's something that's sent out, similar to an apostle, one who is sent out, commissioned, has a specific role, has a specific authority to act as even the person sending. So has a similar term, not exactly one-to-one, -one, but a similar idea would be that of an ambassador, somebody who's representing a, a foreign country to a, another country and has certain measures of authority to, to make pronouncements or agreements you know, within, within bounds, especially when ambassador. An apostle has complete authority to mention, utter, give, give, give direction or or uh, arrangements, very much authority, uh, both in, obviously, the religious sense and the church sense, but also in just the secular sense. Apo apostles are like uh, a power of attorney, another example, not fully one-to-one, -one, but just a lot of those responsibilities, rights, and privileges of power of attorney, very similar to an apostle. But he underscores his authority, saying, I have come not in my own strength, not my own identity, not my own whatever, but come in the power and authority of Christ Jesus himself. He affirms himself or affirms his rightful place among all the apostles. 
Now, we first met apostles back in the Gospels. Those were the 12. I take my shoes off so I can get the number two, but I'm spare you that. He says, I was not one of the 12 or the 11. And he says, even so, I was called as an apostle. And one of the, or two of the characteristics or, or requirements of being an apostle, at least a capital A, if you don't mind, apostle, is did you see the risen Christ? Well, did Paul see the risen Christ? Yeah, he sure did. He saw him multiple times. We can read about that in Galatians uh, chapters 1 and 2. Another place where he affirms and supports and documents his apostolic calls, not from men or by men or to men. It's from God himself. And so he says, yes, I saw the risen Christ. He appeared to me. And secondly, did you receive a, a commission, a direct, you know, you're an apostle kind of thing from Jesus Christ himself? The 12 did, yes. Did Paul? Yes, he did as well. And we will consider that in a little bit. One of the things, being an apostle, underscoring that fact, is that he really sets himself apart from false teachers, those who, especially in Corinth, 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 the city, that were, were causing troubles, causing d divisiveness, bringing disciples after them for their own purposes. And so saying he's an apostle of Jesus Christ says, what are they? What are they? those false teachers might claim, but what proof do they have? What identity do they have? And so he says, no, I am distinguishing myself from those false teachers. We see also that he, by claiming his apostleship, he's saying, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm not his enemy anymore. <clears throat> I am one who is in right relationship with him. I want to represent him. I want to give glory to him and to um, be part of producing or developing his church around the world. He even identifies as an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church in Corinth because he's the one that established this church in his, in his gospel preaching, as we'll read here in Acts 18 in just a moment. And, of course, he says <clears throat> those he will say it as we go along. Those who oppose my apostolic authority, ident identity, credentials, they're in rebellion against God. Because it's not just me. I'm not just here representing myself, my own, my own ideas. I'm speaking on behalf of God. So being called as apostle Jesus Christ is a very big deal that Paul affirms here. It's one of the things that was questioned in, in 1 Corinthians, what he addressed here in this letter, what he addressed also in 2 Corinthians, because... You know, who is Paul? Should we really listen to him? Because he's not here anymore, and we've got these other teachers that are saying this over here. Or, by the way, we don't like what you said to us because we think we ought to do it this way. And Paul says, this is what I teach everywhere. Every church where I minister, I teach the same thing. It's not because you're different. It's not because you're special or anything. No, we're, we're listening to God himself. And so we see these, these special functions or, or responsibilities the apostle has to proclaim the truth, to uh, establish or found the church, who even lead the church. We can see that in, in Acts chapter 6 and other chapters there in Acts, seeing how the church was developed. Notice he says here, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He's, he's affirming his relationship to Christ himself, that there is... Uh, He's not just representing the church in Jerusalem or the church in Antioch. He is representing the head of the church. This is, you know, separating the, the men from the boys, if you don't mind. He says, no, I, I'm not here on my own volition. I've been called, set apart for these purposes. These purposes, I've been, I am representing the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is the head of the church. And by the way, this is the will of God. This is not something that, that uh, again, it, I sought myself or other people upon me. But this is what God has set apart as his own purpose. It's the will of God. It's the purpose or counsel of God, which is not just a, 
an off-the-cuff kind of thing, you know, what have I done uh, recently and how can I fix that issue? But I didn't realize that was going to happen, says God, never. The whole plan is set from the, before the foundation of the world. And even this good work, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, this work of being apostle was something that God prepared beforehand for him, even when he was fighting against the church. This is the will of God. Notice how in these first three verses we see uh, the, the close relationship of Jesus Christ and God. And in a little bit, next verse, he talks about God the Father. Uh, or next verse 3, I guess, he says, God the Father, God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that the relationship between Jesus Christ and God is very clear. We'll see how the Spirit interfaces with the, the other two persons of the Godhead as we go along in the, in the letter. But we see Paul's very high God consciousness, very uh, clear theology regarding the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ and the identity and the purpose and, and pre prevailing or uh, preeminent will of God the Father, the one who d determines and directs all things. And Paul's just saying, this is what's going on here, guys. I'm representing Jesus. It's God's will for this to happen. And by the way, Sosthenes is here too. Okay, who's this Sosthenes guy? Well, how about if we turn back to Acts chapter 18, We've only begun here in 1 Corinthians 18, so you keep your finger or some other small child, perhaps, and, and that part of your Bible, and we will come back there in just a moment. But Acts 18 is the account of how did Paul get to Corinth uh, to begin with. And where does this Sosthenes character come in? Well, I won't read the whole chapter just for, for various purposes, but notice in verse 1, after these things, Acts 17, the preaching on Mars Hill and so forth, he departed Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, or Aquilas, a native of Pontus, and his wife Prisca, Priscilla, who recently came from Italy because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. Parenthesis. What's Claudius doing getting the Jews out of Rome for? What's the big deal? And you think, again, in our modern state, especially with conflict going on in Israel, very much renewed tensions and, and warfare and so forth, you think, no, the Jews have never been sidestepped or, or cast aside in all of history. They've just, they're making it up. In the first century, what was Claudius, emperor in Rome, commanded all the Jews to get out of the city? What's that about? And do we see this repeated? Yes, we see this repeated. Second century AD, we see them kicked out of Jerusalem. Second Jewish revolt. History, Jews have been sidelined and, and cast down. Why? Again, it's not because they are anything except God's chosen people. They are the one who represent God in this world. It's kind of like what Paul says in Colossians 1, 24, that he is filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What's this about? Paul, are you atoning for sacrifice for sin because of your... No, he's saying Christ isn't here. And just like he said to his, his followers, they hated me, they're going to hate you too. And you think, well, the Jewish people aren't representing Jesus, are they? Well, they are. They, they will not admit it because Jesus is the Messiah. There's not another Messiah. There's not another Christ out there. It's the Jewish Messiah. But thankfully... He's the Messiah, the Savior for Gentiles as well. And so now we can be brought near. But the point that we see here is the Jews have been hated because they represent God. They, they are part of God's eternal plan of salvation and blessing and, and the, the glorification that God the Father wants to give to the Son so then the Son can return all that glory to God the Father so that God may be all in all. We'll see that in 1 Corinthians 15. 
anyway, to say that the Jews were persecuted even in the first century, and of course before that and after that, and will be until Christ comes. We see it again here. So he came into um, Corinth, and he was uh, combined with Aquila and Priscilla, and in verse right it says he came to them because he was of the same trade he was staying with them and they were working for by trade they were tent makers they were workers of leather and and different things so they're working together paul met his own needs by by being a tent maker if you don't mind uh working and and uh, buying his food and so forth but notice he was doing that so he could do his main work remember our missionary that was here earlier this summer talked about um the shadow mission and what that's all about and how we are representing Christ wherever we are. He, in verse 4, was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, every Saturday, right, the seventh day of the week, and trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Well, what are the Greeks doing there? Well, they're God-fearing, not maybe proselytes, but but people who, Greeks, Gentiles, who wanted to hear about God, the God of the Bible, the real God. And every Sabbath he was there trying to persuade them. What? You know, vote Republican? No. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Look to him. Find your identity in him. Jew and Greek alike. And notice in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, that's churches like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, and there was another one um, up in that region, Macedonia, northern Greece, that came down. And notice it says Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly bearing witness to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Why could he devote himself completely to the word? I thought he had to work to provide his own uh, food and whatnot. Well, it seems like, I'll suggest, that when Silas and Timothy came, they brought a love gift from at least the Philippian church, I think, because Paul mentions that in his letter to them. You've given to my needs at least twice, and this may be the first time that that happens. So these, this church, Philippian church, or maybe the other churches provided, even though he makes the point, I didn't receive any gifts. We'll get to that in chapter 9. Um, but he says, look, he received some, some uh, material blessings, so he was able to devote himself fully. But notice what happened as he's reasoning every Sabbath day. Verse 6 says, they, this is the Jewish people, unresist, unbelieving Jewish people, resisted the gospel and blasphemed, you know, speaking false things about Jesus. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. In other words, I'm innocent. I've done my job. I've taught you the gospel, and now I'm free of, of the responsibility to go to the Jew first. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Now, this isn't a once-for-all, I'm done with the Jews, I'm going to the Gentiles exclusively from now on. No, just in the present context of Corinth, he had been ministering, devoting himself every, every Sabbath day to the, go to the synagogue. Now he says, I've done my job here. You've heard the gospel. You have no um, way out, right? You've, you've documented and all these. Now I'm going to turn my attention to the Gentiles. Now notice what he does does he goes from the synagogue the building right the house of prayer and, and scripture and, and fellowship verse 7 he left there and went to the house of a man called titius justice or eustace a god-fear whose house was next door don't you love that right next door to the synagogue he had a desire and it could be that this guy eustace heard what what paul was was preaching and said i'm gonna i want to hear that better maybe he was a god-fearing well he was a god-fearing man but one who was there in the in the synagogue meetings as well. But Paul says, I'm done with you guys, but I'm just, I'll be right next door if you need anything. And that's just wonderful because then we see that he meets often. How does it say here? 
well, verse 11 goes on. It says he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But in the middle of that, because there is some great opposition, Corinth, we'll talk about in just a moment, the city, what was it? Well, it was a Hellenistic, which means to say wicked, uh, secular, pagan city, just bad. And there was opposition and the Jews, you know, what did they say? They resisted the gospel, blasphemed the Lord Jesus. And so Paul's saying, I've had all this opposition. Remember, he was just in the Philippian jail for overnight and was was beaten and all these things. And so he, he's saying, is this what I'm going to face here in Corinth as well? God says, the Lord, verse 9, the Lord said to Paul, Lord Jesus, most likely, in the night, came to Paul in the night by vision. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will lay a hand on you in order to harm you. Why? For I have many people in this city. Some had already come to faith, but there are many more that are kind of going to come to faith in the Lord Jesus through this next uh, 18 months of ministry. Paul spent three years in Ephesus. The le- next longest time he spent with any one church continuously uh, was in Corinth, 18 months. That's a long time in, in that time. And he is, is there. Uh, we see this guy, Gallio, who was proconsul, verse 12, and probably at the end of that 18-month period where Gallio... Uh, adjudicated, even though he did it reluctantly, what was going on there. But in the course of that presentation or appeal to this judgment seat of Galileo, uh, verse 17, that's the whole point we're trying to get to, they all, because Galileo just ignored it, says, I'm not going to deal with this. They all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. Back up just a little bit. Verse 8, I forgot to mention Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So Crispus was the, the first leader, but then by the end of that time, this other guy, Sosthenes, became the leader of the synagogue. Wait a minute, isn't it the same Sosthenes that Paul mentions here in 1 Corinthians? Possibly, most likely. Why does he say he's our brother? Because this guy, Sosthenes, was known to the Corinthian church. It could be the same fella. But we read about him in verse 17 of Acts 18 that he was the leader of the synagogue, not a believer, most likely, because they would have kicked him out just as well as they did Paul. <coughs> and so sometime after this, this uh, altercation before uh, the proconsul Gallio, Sosthenes came to faith. It could be like we saw, remember when we studied Colossians, that Epaphras or Epaphras was the founder of the church in, in Colossae, but came to Paul in Rome and brought word what's going on with the Corinthian church. Could be the same kind of situa- situation with Sosthenes, that he had come, I think it's like 230 miles or so from Rome to, to uh, Corinth and brought word perhaps and was there with Paul when he wrote this letter. Because Paul had been interacting with his church for a long time in different situations and had other messengers and other word that had come to him from the church in, in Corinth. Notice he says, he's Thosthenes, our brother. He is the brother. He is known to you and to me. He is delightful, a co-worker. And Paul even says, or suggests, either that, that Sosthenes helped to compose this letter or that he endorsed it entirely. And, and Paul just wanted to, again, have that point of, of commonality, of connection with the Corinthian church, and said, I'm not just an apostle over here, because he's writing from Ephesus across the GNC from Corinth, and he says, I'm not just over here doing my own thing. I have one of one of our men, one of your guys from Corinth right here, and we're writing this letter. We're concerned for you. We want you to be reconciled to God. We want you to be thoughtful and thinking. What does it mean for you to be a, 
a Christian? What does it mean to be a, a person who is in a right relationship with God? Now, he says in verse 2, this is writing, this letter is being written to the church of God, which is at Corinth. When he wrote his letter to the Thessalonians, he talked about the Thessalonians. He makes it very clear this church is not the, a Corinthian church. This is God's church, and you better act like it. This household of God. The church is the, is the pillar of the truth, the household of God, the pillar and support of the truth. And it, you, you better, you, you're thinking wrong about how you're conducting things. This isn't just you do whatever you want to do, uh, which is part of what is going on in the church in Corinth. This is the church which belongs to God. That statement, we think, well, wait a minute, I thought it was Christ's church, Christ's body. Yeah? Is there, is there a problem? When we say this is God's church, no, it's God's church, it's Christ's church, Christ's body. Isn't Christ God? Yes. Okay, so can we can we say that? Can we say that this is the church of Christ, church of God? It's at Corinth, that meets there, but we're t I'm talking to the individuals that have been called together. Some people make the, a big point, and the, you can do that if you want, it's not a... Not, fault, I don't think. Uh, this word church means uh, called out or, or set apart or elect ones. I guess we could even have, there's another uh, variation of this word in Greek that has translated elect or chosen. And so people emphasize, oh, even the sovereignty of God in the word church. Well, yes, could be. We can see, and this, this kind of relates to some other theology that's going on, that, that somehow the nation Israel um, is, is set aside and now it's the church that is God, God's plan and, and, and Israel has nothing to do with God's plan going forward. It's not right. But part of their reasoning is in the Old Testament, it talks about the church that is gathered at Mount Sinai. And you think, what? Well, in the Greek translation, it, talks, it uses that word ekklesia in relation to the assembly, the congregation of the Israelites, and that's the church, right? No, it's, it's, that's just an assembly. Even in Ephesus, there was an assembly, but it was a, a, a lawless assembly. And all these people were rising up and they had this, this riot because of, you know, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they shouted that thing for hours and hours and hours. And they said, this assembly is unlawful. We can't do this. We've got to have a reason for this. And so they disbanded, thankfully. So the word ecclesia can mean just any any people that are called out and say, let's let's meet at this time. And we're, we're identifying or associating with each other has a specific use, though, for local churches or congregations, and even this particular congregation in Corinth. This is the Church of God, which is at Corinth. It can have, and it does, and we'll see this as we go along, has another broader perspective, and that is not just a local assembly, but all the believers everywhere at all time, even those in heaven. So the church, um, uh, universal, usually called universal church versus a local church. But he's talking about this local church, which is at Corinth. Now, Corinth, here we go. Corinth is one of the um, leading cities of the Roman Empire in Achaia, and it has a, a long history from previous, prior to 2000 BC, so time of Abraham and earlier, as people were expanding and, and leaving after the uh, flood and after the Tower of Babel, people are, are expanding through the, through the places here. Ancient Corinth was established in the early Bronze Age, so again, 2000s BC, and there is evidence of pretty steady um, occupation through for for millennia, centuries as we go along. It's highlighted there in red in the in the center, really, of this map on the screen. It is part of Greece. It's part of the. Um, Achaean Peninsula, or the Peloponnese, as it is called, as part of um, of Greece, 
and it is situated in a very strategic spot. One of the terms you become familiar with as you look at archaeology and, and stuff of Israel and other places that have ancient artifacts and ruins is this word tell. And a tell, if you don't mind, is a mound of ruined cities. And you think, why would they build another city on the top of the other city? Just go find something someplace else. Well, there are many reasons for that. Why are why is the same place occupied for a long time? Why don't they just move? For example, modern-day Corinth, Corinth, Corinth is not on the site of ancient Corinth. It's on the coast of the um, Gulf of Corinth, and it's, it's right there. But ancient Corinth was about six miles off the coast, off this, this narrow piece of land, and it was at the base of a plateau that was 1,800 feet above sea level. You're talking, well, what's sea level? We're talking about an isthmus, we're talking about a peninsula, we're talking about right near, near the port. And so this, this was a high uh, mountain where there was what was called the, the high, high place of Corinth or Acro-Corinth, uh, Acropolis, that we can consider, and various things were on site there. But this is an example of what the Roman Corinth looked like. Now I, I need to back up a little bit because Corinth had been occupied for, for millennia prior to the time of Christ, first century A.D., and yet it was, uh, or it became a Greek city-state in the time of the Greek city-state, uh, um, classical Greek or, or the great Greek uh, empire civilization. It had about 90,000 people by various records and accounts at the time of about 400 BC, but it kind of fell out of favor as the Roman Empire was, was, uh, was uh, coming together. From 400 BC until the time of... Um, the mid-2nd century B.C. is when Rome came and says, you guys are opposing us, you're, you're fighting against us, and we're going to destroy you. We're going to... And they did. Uh, Lucius Mummius came in and conquered the city. He killed every male, every adult male, and he sold the women and children into slavery. And they go, why did he do that? Because they defied the Roman Empire, because they were doing these things. So I, I mention that because in that ancient time, before the Romans came and destroyed the ancient city, there was all kind of horrible things going on in Corinth, a lot of immorality and different things. That's where, and I'm sure you've heard this before, that there was even a term coined by a playwright named um, Aristophanes in the mid, about 400 BC, at the height of this, this Greek city-state, the height of this, all, all this stuff, that that word is to Corinthianize or to be a, to be to act like a Corinthian, and we have the idea: oh, it's to be immoral, it's to be uh, you know, all these you know, fornicators and this kind of thing. Well, yes, it's true of that ancient city, the Greek city-state city. Did it still happen in the first century? I think so, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But a lot of the temple service and the temple of Aphrodite, there were three temples: one on the the height or maybe it was all three of them on the height. I forget how, how it was. But three different temples to Aphrodite in that region, whether on the, on the height of the, of the plateau or in the, the city down at the, in the foothills or in the bottom of the area, uh, they would identify this as uh, a, a Corinthian uh, or uh, people who go to Corinth to Corinthianize themselves, uh, lewd, uh, lawless behavior, and so forth. There is a, a statement uh, that another uh, writer said that there was... There were a thousand temple prostitutes that associated themselves with the temple in Afro to Aphrodite. It was a guy who wrote about this 
Strabo. Strabo wrote about this Greek historian about the first century time period. Why am I saying all this? Because we're going to find, as we go through this letter, sexual immorality was a big thing. And the use of prostitutes, we say, oh, it's not a big deal. First Corinthians 6, it is a big deal. Don't do it. And yet, it was part of their history, part of their culture, part of their understanding. Strabo talked about these, and this is a quotation, he recorded more than a thousand temple slaves, courtesans, whom both men and women had dedicated to the goddess. And he goes on to say, these courtesans were sacred to Aphrodite, thus the merchants and soldiers who went there squandered all the money on them. And you think, okay, so they were temple prostitutes, you know, part of religious rite was, was that. Could be. Strabo was a, an historian hundreds of years later. Could he maybe exaggerate a little bit? Perhaps. The point is not to you know, to, not to say all these things about there weren't a thousand of these things, but to say this was a, a nasty city. has a history of that thing, has godless, idolatrous, pagan practices going on. At the time of the, of the complete destruction by the Romans in 146, it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in about 44 B.C. Now again, why, why do they, why was this place so important? Why not just abandon it? Because of its strategic location. Because from this one site, and especially on the Acropolis, on the height of the city, you can see everything that goes through this land. You can see everything on land. Everything has to pass by. There's some other mountains that come. So traffic is really centralized onto the western part of this little isthmus. And you can, you can monitor everything that goes by. You can see both the, the Adriatic Sea to the, to the west and the Aegean Sea to the east. And you can see all the traffic that's coming in there. Very important. Also, this one of the other aspects of a tell, why is a, a specific site populated? Because it's defensible. Obviously, they can, and this was a walled city on, on the height of the of the plateau, and it could harbor all the residents of the of the lower city, and anybody around could come up in time of battle and and find refuge there within the walls of the Acropolis or Acrocorinth. Also, had springs of water with in relation to the the height there and the water, the rainwater that would come down, and then provided spring water, which was the best, the freshest water anybody could want for. There are other reasons why uh, a city would be built here again. And that is, is raw material. Why not reuse what we did? So, you know, all the, the broken down buildings made of stone, not wood so much, but stone. Hey, let's reuse some of this and some of that, and we'll build something else new. And so that's why these cities were, were built uh, many different times. Here's another view from the, uh, the height of the Acropolis, and you can see both, both bodies of water. At its narrowest point, this isthmus, which is a narrow strip of land that connects the mainland of Greece to the peninsula of the, the Peloponnesian Peninsula, and it came down to a stricture of about four miles, four-mile distance. Now, the reason, again, why Corinth specifically was, was so popular and, the, and part of the factors of what made it such a pagan city going forward is because it was a trade-central location. People coming from, from south to north, east to west, would pass through this narrow strip of land. Well, why, why would that be so? Because if you were to go around the entire uh, Peloponnese or the P Peloponnesian <laughs> Peninsula, it would be 250 miles around that. So you, you save all that distance. Plus, the weather, especially you, you see the, the, the fingers sticking down on the bottom of that Peloponnese, the Peloponnesian Peninsula, those were notoriously treacherous seas. They're capes. Uh, Cape Malleus was the one on the eastern side. Uh, and that is, remember Homer's uh, Odyssey, talking about Odysseus, he was not shipwrecked, but definitely blown off course and had 10 years worth of adventures because he was trying to come around the southern point of that, southern point of that cape and just 
had a headwind and treacherous stuff. And so it was a dangerous thing, such that even people would say, and I wasn't able to find a, a source for this, but I'll just say it because it sounded good, um, that before sailors would sail around the southern coast of, of Peloponnesia, Peloponnese, uh, they would have to write their will, make sure their will was already in place. Well, by crossing, instead of going below this, this whole region, this um, peninsula, by crossing over this isthmus, it saved hundreds of miles of, of uh, travel and was a safer thing. You think it was safer to unload your ship and, and put it on carts and carry it across? Yes. In fact, the time period of, I think it was 600 uh, BC, yeah, Periander, who, who has a, a similar or a, an interesting name. He was called the second uh, tyrant of Corinth, which you think, hmm, that's, at least he's clear about it, who's in charge here. Periander may have built what we call the, a, a, a kind of a railroad, a, a primitive railroad where he had a, a, a stone a roadway that, that you could carry these carts across four miles, unload your ships, and sometimes if the ship wasn't too big, they would just put the whole ship on something and carry it across and put it on the other side or, or vice versa. And that uh, dialkos, it was called, this portage or, or way across, uh, was useful for a long time. In fact, that guy Aristophanes, that poet uh, who coined the term Corinthianize, he said he has another phrase called as fast as a Corinthian, which said you can cross over this place. Yeah, they were very fast. And they, they used that for obviously transporting goods, but also transporting soldiers and, and weapons and so forth. Emperor Nero in the second or first century rather had an idea and even began work on a canal. Now, instead of porting, you know, going across the land, why not? It's only four miles, right? And we've got enough slaves and servants. Let's make this, this happen. So he started work on a canal. It was not completed until the 1800s, 1890. Or 1893, it opened for service. Now it's been maintained and enlarged and so forth over the years, I'm sure, and it's useful. It's only four miles of, of uh, water traffic, and it saves such a, a long time of travel, and it is very much useful uh, even today for, for travel across that region. Again, because of this, because there's so much traffic, trade, people coming back and forth, you see all kind of people coming through there. It's a trade town. It is a, a town where all kinds of, if you don't mind, scum and villainy can come and collect themselves and just be nasty over there. You have tradespeople, you have people buying and selling, you have people who want to be friendly with the rich people, you know. Um, they want to be artisans, um, philosophers, and so forth that, that uh, need a... A um, patron would come, hey, there's patrons there, there's rich people there in Corinth, and so it attracted a lot of people right into this area. It became the third largest city in the Roman Empire. First would be Rome, of course. Second would be Alexandria in Egypt. And the third is Corinth. I mean, a huge, huge city. So many people coming and going. Metropolitan, you have uh, you have the the Greek history and culture going on. They have the Roman culture going on there as well. You have the Jewish people. There's a a, a lintel, like a, a top of a door that is inscribed. Part of it is inscribed uh, synagogue of the Hebrews, or, or yeah, of the Hebrews. And it was found. So there, there were Jews here, obviously, because there's here's a synagogue we read about in Acts 18, and we see also some kind of these mystery religions or kind of these these things that are coming from the, the Near East and beyond that, that are collecting here. And so a lot of different dynamics in this church in Corinth, which lends itself to some confusion, some wrong theology going on in this time as well. 
there was a temple going on. There was also a temple or a whole thing about the emperor or, or the imperial cult about worshiping Julius Caesar as the god and then the subsequent uh, Caesars as well. And uh, there's some indication of that. Another thing that Corinth had going for it was the Isthmian Games. Second only to the Olympian Games, the Olympiad were the Isthmian Games. It happened every other year and uh, happened in, the, in this time period. And that comes into play in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. And so a lot of things relate to this site. Why is this so important? Again, Paul was very deliberate about the places that he chose to minister in and to. And he said, I'm going to Corinth and we're going to do uh, some gospel work in this city. Well, coming back to the text there in verse 2, he says, this is the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, I make a big deal of it. You don't have to all the time, but this is the church. We're talking about not the church, like the church building or Wynn's church, you know, the church service, the church meeting. We're talking about the people, right? This is the congregation. These are the people he's talking to. And you can talk about the church, you know, going to church or going, you know, whatever. You can do that. That's fine. I won't be angry with you. But specifically, we're talking about the people. This is the church of God, which is at Corinth. He says to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints. He makes double statement of this, saying, look, you are sanctified. You have been sanctified. You have been set apart in Christ Jesus. And by the way, that means you're called as saints. Just like Paul was called as an apostle, you guys are called as saints. So the, these are the people who have been claimed by God. If you don't mind, reclaimed by God. They have been um, saved by his grace and set apart for his service it's kind of like this idea of sanctification or being a saint or holy like this it's kind of like if you have a friend of mine had you know had would carry different knives but he had his sunday go to meet and knife that he would put on his belt because it was a, it was a nicer belt or a nicer knife rather he'd wear so you might have a, a sunday tie or you might have the the sunday um um china or, or something that's set apart you don't use it for everyday use you use it for a specific special use could be your Christmas lights and whatever. Here, he says, you have been sanctified. You're no longer your own. You can't just do what you want to do. You have been set apart for God's use. You are his. And he's going to make this point at the end of chapter 6. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, you glorify God in your body. You make sure that you honor him. You have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. You have been called as saints. So both the identity, having been sanctified, we are set apart for God. We are a new creature. We're not our own anymore. We're God's. And he has called us to act like it. Oh, you mean I'm supposed to be holy as I'm called to be holy? Oh, okay, I guess that's good. Yes, it's good, and it's right, and it is only fitting for us, if we are having have been sanctified, that we should act like it. So that connection between identity and conduct is central to this letter. And he makes that point repeatedly. He's making it right here at the very beginning. He is setting a lot of things right on the table as, as Paul enters into this letter. I'm an apostle. You better listen to me. You guys, you're, you're the church. You're church of God. You're not your own church. It's not the church of Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Christ. It's the church of God. And you have been sanctified. You are, you are different. You, should, you, you are, as identity, different, but also in your practice, different to whatever else you see going on in Corinth. You are different. You are called as saints. You are those who are set apart for God's purposes. It's not something, again, that, oh, you're a saint. Well, <laughs> if you're in Christ, you are a saint. You are a set-apart person. You are one who ought to honor, honor God in these ways. And so he, he makes this point all throughout 
his ministry, these saints that he, he talks to. Uh, set apart, appointed, and should act like it. And he makes this point as well, because this, this Corinthian church had the idea that, that uh, you know, they, they were it. They were, they were really, they got everything under control. And they were the spiritually minded, mature people. And Paul says, let me tell you, you are not that. You are not mature. You are not spiritual. This is, how spiritu- this is what spirituality looks like. You guys think you're so special, but look, you are part of this bigger thing. In other words, the church is bigger than just you in Corinth, the third largest city in Roman Empire. Great, but you are part of something bigger even than the Roman Empire. You are calling with every person that meets in every different place. You are calling on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not Caesar, not part of emperor worship in this. You're calling on, praying, asking the favor of, asking the aid of, the salvation, the deliverance from our Lord Jesus Christ. Their Lord and ours. He makes this common appeal. You guys are wonderful, and I gave you in the second longest time of my apostolic ministry in Corinth, but you're just, you're just like the church in Berea, or Thessalonica, or Antioch, or in Jerusalem, or the church in Rome, or, or these other different cities. Every place we have a, a, a similar focus, and that is the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of us are together in the same boat. All of us ought to be going the same direction. Their Lord and ours. It's not that even Paul being an apostle was somehow above the rest of the people. No, he was saved just like the rest of the other people. I made that point in Galatians 2 with Peter, remember? You know, we're being Jews and Gentiles, all that stuff you can read in, in Galatians 2, being justified by grace through faith. And so he says, look, you, you guys need to think of yourself less and think of what's going on in the broader Christian world, Christendom, if you don't mind the thing. But it, the word that is used is the church, right? The church. Those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who find their identity in him and find great grace from him. Finally, in verse 3, the greeting, having identified the author, the recipient, grace to you, this greeting that he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this, this phrase, it starts with grace. And Paul uh, one commentator made the point that Paul would, and often did, Christianize a lot of different things. He would use uh, just a normal uh, example or, or just a, a worldly, but not in a base kind of sense or an evil sense, just something that's in the world, like Jesus used parables to illustrate or sometimes to obfuscate, to hide certain truths. But Paul would sanctify certain things. The normal greeting in a Greek culture would be uh, actually... In Greek, karain, karain. And so they'd say, hey, karain, karain. And then it's just a greeting. And we see this a couple of times in Scripture. Uh, James 1 and Acts 15, I think, have those two phrases used there. But he says it's not just karain, uh, uh, rejoice, to rejoice is the idea, but charis, charis, grace. This, so he's, he's Christianizing the normal Greek, Greek greeting by saying, hey, it's grace, it's grace to you. And notice... It doesn't say, and, and you can be kind of pedantic about it, but it doesn't say grace and peace to you. It says grace to you and peace. In other words, we need grace first. Grace is the foundational reality we need from God, the act of grace, the empowerment of grace, the, the relationship that, enab- that is enabled with God through grace and with each other. So grace to you and what results from that, peace. Peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. So the, he Christianizes the Greek reading and he intersects or inter, interposes, there's the word maybe, uh, the traditional Hebrew or Jewish greeting, which is shalom, right? Peace, shalom, 
which has to do not just with peace, but, but well-being and, and fullness or completeness and just this, this overall, yeah, it's good. Kind of so grace to you and peace. And this peace is not from me. It's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think four different times he mentions the Lord Jesus Christ. He's an apostle. Uh, these are sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was another example as well where he says, uh, those who call on the name of, the, of Christ, and, and then, of course, how grace and peace uh, come or, or are a benefit from the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ is kind of central to Paul's theology. and ought to be central to the Corinthian theology as well. And their, their party spirit, their worldliness, their re, the residual effects both in their own lives and thinking, but also the pressure they have around them from the Corinthian church, or not the church, Corinthian church, Corinthian culture, unsaved people. He says, you guys, you, and you need to act better, not because your salvation is, is um, at stake. It is in, in some regard, not because our, our salvation is based on our works, but our works indicate the proof or the reality, the genuineness, the authenticity of our faith of our calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're acting like an unbeliever, why should we think you to be a believer? And he makes that point in, in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 and, and throughout. He says, look, you guys come to the Lord Jesus Christ, honor him, find your identity in him, and act in a manner that is commensurate or equal to your new identity in Christ. Well, I'm looking forward to this book. This is going to be a fantastic um, uh, adventure, I think. One author, did I say it here? F.F. Bruce said, this is an exciting, one of the most exciting of Paul's epistles. So we're going to have an exciting time uh, that as we, as we study through. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you are a merciful God. We're thankful that we have grace through our Lord Jesus Christ, a peace that passes understanding, a peace that is something that we can't garner or gender, uh, engender or create in our own selves, but by your uh, wonderful grace and mercy. We see your attention to us. And we're grateful that you said Corinth back 2,000 years ago, and you're still in the business of saving people and changing our lives for your glory. We pray that we would carry out or fulfill our identity in Christ by living holy lives, holy lives taken captive, as we sang just recently. Uh, leave no unguarded place, but fortify the whole. We want to be your people. We want to be set apart for your purposes this is a lost and dying generation. People are going to hell because of their rebellion against the gospel. And we have the answer. We have the solution that everybody needs. Everybody needs the gospel, Jew and Greek and everybody in between. We pray that we would be faithful in, of course, communicating it, but even more importantly, to live for your glory and to uh, give people opportunity to praise you. We thank you for this letter. 2,000 years later, we still read it because it's your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and Sosthenes, and we pray that we would have a similar reward in your presence. We are thankful. Thank you for each one who's here. Please save and sanctify for your namesake. Bring his name. Amen.